I believe as we continue to posture ourselves in that place of exalting Jesus for, for as long as that is the confession of the church, that I exalt thee, that, that we exalt thee, for as long as the days are that we sing that, will be the days that God meets us with his grace and releases the spirit across his church. For as long as the days are that we sing, I exalt thee, will be for as long as the days God keeps outpouring the gifts, prophecy, of interpretation, of tongues, of wisdom, of knowledge, of discernment, of teaching, of hospitality, of all of the gifts. As Jesus is exalted as the, as the centre and the head of the church, as he is worshipped and nothing else, as he alone is worshipped, the Spirit of God will pour out upon us. It is the promise of Scripture and that is the hope that which we have. It's a hope not just for now but for eternity. We'll be singing this chorus all of the days of our lives, come what may. And I think God will honour that in a time and in a culture that wants to be like the Pharisees and tell us to be quiet. The more we honour the Lord by lifting His name up above everything else, the more that He will honour us with His goodness and His gifts and our old men will see dreams, or was it prophesy, and then the young ones see dreams, I don't know, but either way, we're going to have a riot of it as God continues to bless the church as His name is lifted up. Uh, let's pray before we get into the Word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would take uh, my perspective and my words and my preparation from this week and the articulation of these words and that you would turn it into revelation. That, Father, may what I say not be remembered. In fact, may my feeble words be forgotten and what your Spirit speaks to every heart this morning be what is remembered and what remains. Uh, so, Spirit, speak to us, um, shift something within us, and Father, may every heart that hungers and every soul that thirsts be fed and watered from the gardens and the streams of heaven this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, as I read the word uh, this morning, if you're able and comfortable, um, I want us all to stand um, as a way of revering God's Word and being in unity together around the Word. It's going to be on the screen for you, and I'm reading from Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to 34 um, in the ESV, and it goes a little bit like this. In fact, it goes exactly like this. I'm not making any of it up. <laughs> and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, 
You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Take a seat. So just to set the scene uh, a little bit here for you, this interaction between Jesus and the scribe uh, was in the throes of what would have been um, quite usual and also robust debate. Only moments prior to this, some Pharisees and some Herodians had cornered Jesus in, try, in another one of their gotcha kind of moments and was asking, you know, do we need to pay taxes to Caesar or just give to God what is God's and uh, whatnot? And as Jesus does, he put the argument to bed pretty quickly and the word tells us that they all marveled at him. You know, there's this, there's this sense of Jesus teaching and his authority being recognised um, in these moments of debate. And not too long after the paying taxes to Caesar one, another mob, the Sadducees, they engaged Jesus in a debate about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, didn't think that it happened. In fact, they held the strong line that once you are dead, you are dead. There's no coming back to life. And they proposed a rather ridiculous scenario to try and prove that their view that resurrection doesn't happen is correct. And they threw out this silly scenario. They proposed that a man got married um, to a wife and being custom that, um, that if a man was to die, the next brother would marry her and bring up what would have been his offspring. And so they said, well, if that happened and this, the second husband, our brother, he died, um, then, then what? And then the third uh, brother married the woman and then he died. And then the fourth married the woman and he died. I'm not sure what this woman in this probably fictitious story was doing, but she had gone through and had seven guys killed. Well, not killed, but they all died while being married to this woman. And they said, well, in the resurrection, you know, who's going to be um, his wife? And Jesus just shook his head. They said, you guys are absolute knuckleheads. You don't know the word of God, nor God's power, so catch you later. And chuckling in the corner as all of this was going on was this scribe. As Jesus schooled these Sadducees, there's a scribe kind of just watching curiously on, just kind of laughing at how Jesus has just given it to the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and thought, right, here's my shot. I'm going to join the circus as well. And decides he's going to throw Jesus a hairy question of his own. <clears throat> Jesus, of all 613 commandments in the Torah, which there is in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, there are 613 God-given commandments. Jesus, which one would you say matters the most? I mean, if you could pick just one of that 613, Jesus, which one would you say trumps them all? I mean, if, if this scribe was a podcaster running a podcast and Jesus was his guest on the show, it would be the final question that the interviewer asks the interviewee being Jesus and, you know, says something along the lines of, thanks for being with us today, Jesus. Before you go, if you had one final thought, just one thing, perhaps the most important thing to leave our audience with today, what would it be? And from the word, we know that Jesus' answer is, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. While I've got the mic, you should love your neighbour as yourself. There's no greater commandment than this. And it was in this moment, the scribe that Jesus was speaking with showed no attempt at all to argue with Jesus. In fact, he affirms Jesus' response. You know, this guy wasn't out to pick a fight. He heard Jesus' answer to this and went, oh, that sounds familiar. As a Jewish man, this scribe would have been fully cognizant and acquainted with this commandment. See, the Jewish community would, back then and still do now, recite what is known as the Shema in their morning and evening prayers every day. And this commandment was not a new one that Jesus had just pulled from thin air. It is a reiteration of God's commandments to the Israelites back in the Exodus. After the recount of giving the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is entitled the greatest commandment. In chapter 6, 4 to 5, it is written, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And this is recited by the Jews every morning and every evening, as has been done for generation after generation after generation, even to now. And it is called the Shema. And the first word in the Shema, both in Deuteronomy and in Jesus' response to the scribe, um, in, translated in Hebrew as the word hear. Hear and Shema are the same word, which means to listen, which is where this prayer gets its name. Hear, O Israel. The very first word, hear, Shema, 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 O Israel. You see, Shema is found throughout the Bible, which shouldn't surprise us all that much, given that hearing is a very universal activity. However, the word Shema actually has deeper meaning than simply describing the action of sound waves working their way into the holes in the side of your head. In Hebrew, Shema also means pay attention to. It means focus on. I mean, deeper still... Shema means respond to what you hear. Which is why so many cries, especially in the book of Psalms, begin with a call that God would listen. I mean, how often does David, and it's got in Psalm 27, um, 7 here, say, Hear my voice, Shema my voice, when I call, O Lord, be merciful and answer me. See, asking God to listen in Scripture, anytime you see someone crying out, listen, God, hear my prayer, God, he heard the cries of his people, asking God to listen or to shema is asking God to act or to do something. You know, flip it the other way, and it's exactly the same. When God says to his people, listen, we see that word listen or hear in Scripture. It is the word shema, and it is a joint call to both listen and obey. It's, it's kind of like a coin. There's the two sides to the Shema coin. One side is listen, to hear, 
and the second is to obey. And these two are not mutually exclusive in Hebrew thought in the Scripture. To listen and to hear is to act. So when Jesus begins his articulation of what the greatest commandment is, it is prefaced with a call to action, to do something. Scripture makes it clear that our faith is proved true through action. And we as God's kingdom people are called to indwell that truth. There is a demand on us as people of God's word that as Paul um, Stevens in his book Living Theologically says, that we need to recognise that the movement of the Bible is always from the indicative to the imperative, from doctrine to duty, from kerygma to didache, from theology to ethics, from revealed truth to extraordinary living. So in Jesus reiterating the Shema to answer the question of what is the greatest commandment, he is saying to this scribe, pay attention to what I am about to say because it's going to require you to act. The greatest commandment is not a great suggestion or a great idea or a great idealistic goal for us to set for ourselves. Or as in the case of this scribe and the debates he and others love to have, Jesus is saying this commandment is not just another theological football for you and your cronies to throw around the park. I'm going to give you truth and you are going to need to respond to that truth. So are you ready, Mr. Scribe? When he says the word here, he's asking the scribe to brace himself. I am about to do something and you can't just take this something and go and argue it with your friends. You need to take this something, this indicative truth of who I am, and you are to go and do something of it with your life. So, Mr. Scribe, are you ready? The truth is, Mr. Scribe, that I am the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And when we say that the movement of the Bible is always from the indicative to the imperative, this is the biblical indicative that Jesus in this moment is restating the truth that there is only one God, one Lord, one Saviour and one King, that he is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob that he is the God of all of creation. And to borrow and adapt uh, the poem penned by Mr. Hewitt recently, he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Master and Creator of all things. He is the Lamb of God, the Lord of hosts. He is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He is Yahweh, the Great I Am. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our healer, provider, saviour, and friend. So they being the biblical indicative, indicative of who God is as the one true God. What are we to do? What's the biblical imperative? Because it must, all the way through the Bible, it is a must that we take the indicative and we live out the imperative. So what are we to do based on all of those indicatives? Love him. 
with all your heart and to love him with all of your soul and to love him with all of your mind and to love him with all of your strength. We need to shamar the heck out of that until his kingdom come. To listen to that and obey it with every fibre and ounce of our being. James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Be quick to shamar. Let every person be quick to hear and quick to obey. Be slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who does, he will be blessed in his doing. Shema. Listen and obey, hear and do. No truth revealed and live it extraordinarily. And so we are here now, diving into four weeks of not just hearing how to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength, but also doing it. We can't afford to allow what the Lord imparts to us through his word to um, become like a Pharisee who takes it like a football and just kicks it around and talks about it and, cool, what are we going to do now? No, no, no. There is an imperative, a call on us to take the word of God and apply it and to live it out every day of our lives. So now that my introduction is out of the way, let's get started on today's topic. <laughs> How do we love God with all of our heart? Any ideas? We're going to watch a video that might help dispel some of the myths of what we think about when we think about the heart. Thanks, Greggy. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the fourth key word in this prayer, heart, which in Hebrew is sometimes pronounced levav, or more often in a shorter form, lev. 
Now, different cultures throughout history have had different conceptions of how the human body works, and this is also true of the ancient Israelite writers of the Bible. They knew that the heart was an organ in the chest that sustains life. There's mention of a heart attack in the Bible, Naval, whose heart died inside of him and he became like stone. But the biblical authors talk about the heart in many other ways that might seem strange to modern readers, and that's because these Israelites had no concept of the brain or any word for it. They imagined that all of a human's intellectual activity takes place in the heart. For example, you know with your heart in the Bible. Your heart is where you understand and make connections. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom dwells in the heart. And your heart is what you use to discern between truth and error, like Solomon did when he was king. So the heart is where you think and make sense of the world, and it's where you do more. In the Bible, the heart is where you feel emotions. You feel pain in your heart, like Hannah did when she couldn't have any children. In fact, the phrase, a broken heart, comes from ancient biblical Hebrew. You also experience fear in your heart. Your heart can melt or be distressed. Your heart can even be depressed. But then, on the flip side, your heart is where you experience joy. In Hebrew, to be happy is to be good of heart, or to have a heart of joy. So the heart is the generator of physical life. It's also the center of your intellectual and emotional life, and there's more. In Biblical Hebrew, the heart is where you make choices motivated by your desires. So David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. Your heart is where your affections are centered. They're called the desires of your heart. And if you really want something and go after it, it's like what Nathan said to David, whatever's in your heart, go and do it. So then, in the Bible, the heart is the center of all parts of human existence, as in the well-known proverb, guard your heart because from it flows your whole life. Now the prophet Jeremiah believed that the human heart was fundamentally broken. He said, the heart of a human is deceitful above all, irreversibly sick, who can even understand it? He had watched a whole generation turn away from God. They started sacrificing their children as if that were a good thing. So this is why in the imagination of the Hebrew prophets, the only hope for humanity is the total renewal of the human heart. Moses predicted that if Israel was ever going to love their God, their heart would need to be circumcised, which is a very vivid and surprising metaphor about removing evil and stubbornness from the human heart. David, after he committed murder and adultery, pleads with God to create in me a pure heart. The prophet Ezekiel hoped for a day when God would remove the heart of stone and give his people a new heart of soft flesh, which is very similar to Jeremiah's hope that God would write the commands of the Torah on the hearts of his people. And that brings us all the way back to the Shema. Every day, God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Pretty cool, hey? <clears throat> we could just leave it there, but I'm not done. It would seem to me that the Hebrew view of self is fundamentally different to ours. It seems that the ancient Hebrew view of self is born from their understanding of the heart. They understood the heart to be the engine of physical life to happen and to be sustained. It was the epicenter of emotions and intellect and also where, as it was said, the place where choices are made born from desire. And it would appear that the biblical view um, of the heart was a very integrated and connected to all of life affair. 
I mean, it's interesting to me that as I consider Jesus' words to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, how quickly my mind goes to categorize and label things. You know, even this week when someone asked what I was speaking on and so we're studying this series and, you know, I'm speaking on the heart and they said, oh, so which, how do you define the heart? Is it this way? And, and I, I find myself doing the same. I mean, surely the heart just means my feelings, right? You know, the softer bits of emotion and the warm fuzzies, you know, I need to give God more of my feelings. Is that how I love him with more of my heart or... You know, do I, do I just need to, to worship him with a little bit more reckless abandon? Um, and maybe do I need to be a bit more passionate when I pray? You know, do I need to cry a little bit more when I pray? Do I need to laugh a little bit more when I pray? Is that what it means to love God with my heart? And, and then I try and think, okay, cool, I'll park the heart for a second and um, I'll just think about the mind, you know. Do I need to tackle that pile of books that are sitting on my desk and really engage deeply in thought and reflection and really tickle my Noah um, about God and theologically thing, theological things and, um, you know, just intellectually love God? Is that what it means to love God with my mind? And then I think about the soul, you know. I mean, is that my creative side? I'm not quite sure worshipping God more fully from the depth who, of who He's created me to be, maybe. Love Him from how He's wired me. Love Him with the stuff that I actually have no category for because the word soul these days, isn't it just pretty nondescript? We can say soul and it can just about mean anything. And what about strength, you know? Do I, do I just need to do more stuff to people for people? Do I need to love God by not being a quitter and by being more resilient and not backing down. I mean, sure, like all of those things could be great. You know, it's like I pull out the, 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 the dino, dino label maker. Who's got a label maker at home? Here's one I've prepared earlier. And it's like we, we get the, the bits and we go, right, I'm, gonna, that, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to love God with this bit of me now. You know, maybe this is worship at church. I'm going to sing the songs from my heart and I'm going to love God here and uh, but then on, on Wednesday, when I've got some time to read and tackle those books, I'll, I'll worship and love God just with what's up here in my mind. And then my soul, where do you put the soul? Does anyone know where the soul is? Some people say it's the throat, actually. That's, that's, not, that's not even a joke. Um, and then strength, you know, do I, um, you know, this week when I got on a moment to love somebody with my my hands, you know, to do something practical, I'll just put that on the guns, <laughs> um, you know, and it's like we, we pull out and we categorize and we break down into these disparate parts that somehow connect, but we're not quite sure, but, you know, I just love going in my mind and just then with my heart and whatnot. You know, on one hand, this type of category making can seem logical and uh, simple or perhaps even helpful uh, to help us make sense of the complexity of loving and knowing a incomprehensible God. I mean, on the other hand, though, does this kind of compartmentalization go against the very grain of how God intended that we love Him? To answer my own question, yeah, I think it does. 
mean, perhaps the compartmentalization of self and our disintegrated worship of God is our way of boxing God in, of making him small enough to control while convincing ourselves he's still just big enough to worship. You know, I've got a feeling that God wants to break every box that we've tried to make for him and for our worship of him and return us, his bride, to a more fully embodied, deeply integrated, present to him with our whole selves kind of love. You know, this is more than just a feeling that I've got. This must be the vocation of us as the church. If we are to see the renewal that the church needs in the West and especially in our country right now, a love for God that is not part-time or when I've got time, not a love for God that is when it's convenient or safe or practical to do so, not a love for God that fits into the fleeting moments of free time in my calendar, a love that I give Him in word but not in action, in thought and not in practice, in ideas and not in service, but a love that is embodied, a love that is completely integrated, a love that stems from the wholeness of our being. I just don't tickle my mind and say, God, I love you with my mind, and I don't just sit here and get a bit emotional in church and go, God, I'm loving you with my emotion right now. No, God is calling the church to a fully embodied, fully integrated love and worship of Him. A good mate of mine and mentor over many years, Nick Gilmore, wrote his doctoral thesis on the topic, Empowering Head, Heart and Hands a missional discipleship model for Australian church health, multiplication and social transformation. In his writing, Nico makes the argument, and yes, I do get my kicks out of reading doctoral theses and whatnot, uh, but he says this, that there is a trichotomy, that is three divisions, that exist within the church, which he calls the theological triad. And as much as that sounds like an outlaw Christian motorcycle gang, it's not. And this theological triad points to three typical ways of experiencing God and living out our faith. The first one is orthopathy. Ortho meaning right, pathy meaning emotions, that we worship God with right feelings, right affections, right passions, right emotions. The next one is um, ortho, orthopraxy, right praxis, doing right doing. We love God by uh, enacting justice in the world and serving others and doing practical things, right doing. And the third one in the, this triad, orthodoxy, right thinking. And he makes the point that as churches have disintegrated their experience of God and disintegrated their expression of loving Him and others, either into the categories of head, heart and hands, the renewal that is so desperately needed in the church is sailing off into the sunset while we're still sitting here on the dock wondering why we feel so stuck. And the same applies to us as followers of Jesus, if we either focus too heavily on our love for God in either emotionally connecting with Him, intellectually connecting with Him, or practically serving Him, we can begin to live out an insufficiently integrated spirituality that can and will stymie our discipleship and the renewal work that God is doing us and in the church. And so it's time for us to put away the Dymo label maker and to learn to love God, not with a disintegration of 
heart, head, hands, not a disintegration of heart, mind, soul, and strength, but with a renewed integration of the entirety of who we are, loving God with all that I have, all of it, seamlessly and wonderfully together. Michael Frost says this, and it's a long quote, and we've got it on the screen. It is in the nexus between orthopraxy, orthopathy, and orthodoxy that a true and full appreciation of God is to be found. In the place where all three intersect, we are less likely to make the mistakes that occur when we favour one over the others. If we adopt a commitment to orthopraxy alone, at our worst, we become tireless and tired activists, burning ourselves and others out while relying on our own efforts to please God. If we foster orthopathy to the exclusion of all others, we end up as impractical mystics or experienced junkies, so focused on contemplation and personal spiritual experience that we become of no use in the kingdom of God. But as we well know, if our primary or exclusive interest is in orthodoxy, as in the case in many churches today, at our worst, we are arrogant bibliophiles, ideologues no different from the Pharisees, worshipping our doctrine and our theological formulations over a genuine encounter with Jesus revealed in Scripture. It is in the place where the ways of head, heart and hands overlap that we find our way to Jesus. And in exactly the same way, it is in the overlap of our head, of our mind, of our soul and of our strength in the full integration and overlap of these expressions of how God has created us and wired us that we will see him and love him more fully. Now, people way smarter than I have written and preached and debated on what each of the heart, head, mind, soul, strength represent in our lives and how we can tap into them to love God better. But the language of the Bible when it comes to loving God in this context and the language of Jesus in answering this scribe's question is all, with all of it, to love God with all of ourselves. And the Greek word for all, Bredo, is holos. Bredo's favourite joke is, what is it? Uh, when the Bible says all in the Greek, it means all. <laughs> he's still, I think he's the only one that laughs. Actually, that's not true. I still laugh. I still laugh. I really do. I think it's funny. Uh, but it's where we get the word holos. And the scriptures are replete with exhortations to love God holistically. Psalm 84, 2, my soul longs, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. You know, David was a man who knew how to worship God with the wholeness of his being. Romans 12, 2, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In your waking, in your sitting, in your standing, in your eating, in your drinking, in your everything, love God with it all. And that's what it means to love God with your whole heart, to love Him with it all. Your body, your emotions, your desires, your choices, your intellect, all of it. So the question is, why does Jesus expound beyond the heart? You know, if the heart is where the center of everything happens, surely that means soul and surely that means mind and surely that means strength. Why did Jesus have to go on? Surely he could have just finished it there. You know, just love, love me with all your heart. 
And they would have understood what that meant, to be everything. But why, why did Jesus feel the need? Why did God, back when he gave the commandments and the greatest commandment to the Israelites in the Exodus, why did he feel the need to give them more than just the heart? You know, this is not a divergence, I don't believe, from loving God with our heart, but a deepening of it. I think that this is Jesus' way of saying, don't stay narrow. God was speaking to me this week around around this, and I, I believe that he's taking the blinkers off us as a church, not just us. You know, I think God is taking the blinkers off his church, that there are, there are things that have been in the peripheral vision for whatever reason, call it COVID, call it life, call it whatever the reason is, but a narrowing. There's been a narrowing of our vision. We've had blinkers on for far too long. And I believe that God is bringing us into a season where he's saying, don't stay narrow. As we learn to love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strength, the totality of our being, the narrow vision of the past will widen and we will see, experience and walk into the spaciousness of his kingdom as we love others in obedience to his word and his spirit. You know, this, this word around widening. You know, God gave me a picture this week as I was praying and it was a picture of a, a car just driving on a, on a single winding uh, road. It was having a wonderful old time of it, seeing the views and the vistas. But then all of a sudden, that single lane bellied out and gave way to a multi-lane highway. You know, I've, and I know this to be true for my life. Sometimes I can get so stuck just in the single track, focused, staying at the same speed, doing what I've always been done, loving God in the same kind of ways, approaching my walk with Him in the same kind of ways. And all of a sudden, I, I kind of, you know, God is opening up things around me to experience Him here and love Him in different ways. But here am I holding white knuckled on to the past, going, no, this is cozy. This is comfy. This is how I know how to love you, God. This is how I know how to be a dad. This is how I know how to be a pastor. This is how I know how to be. I'm just going to sit here and hang on tight. Yet there is so much more road that God is asking or calling us to explore. You know, when it comes to loving him with everything that we are. You know, there are new lanes in the road that God is opening for the church to experience his love, to experience his presence, to experience his peace, to experience his nearness, that we would respond in ways that we have not responded to him before. It's like we've been flying in a fog, you know, caught in the clouds for some time. And we're coming into a season where we pop out above the clouds, above the fog, and we will see with fresh eyes and clear vision the grandeur and wonder of God and his kingdom call upon us. Isaiah 43, 18 says this, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do not perceive it. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wastelands. You know, when it comes to loving God with all of our hearts, when it comes to God inspiring his church to love him like he wants to be loved, he is doing a new thing. He's opening up new ways. He is widening our experience of him and our expression of love for him. 
And Jesus in John 4, he's having a conversation with the disciples who were concerned about the fact that Jesus hadn't eaten anything. He just had his interaction with the, the woman at the well and they all went off back into town to get some lunch and they came back and they didn't get any for Jesus, but he wasn't too upset. He said to them, my, you know, I, I've got food that you guys don't know about and my food is to do the will of the Father. He says to them, do you not say that there are four months until the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. These disciples had blinkers on that were only showing them four months down the road. But Jesus is saying to them, no, lift up your eyes, take off the blinkers. There is a new thing I'm doing now and the harvest is ripe and plentiful. Lift your eyes to see it. And I believe there is a harvest of God's goodness in his presence that is right before our very, very eyes. That to walk into the wide and spacious place of his love, to enter into the clarity of his grace and his mercy and of his forgiveness. And we will experience a love like we have never loved before. When we take the blinkers off, when we receive the invitation into the wide place, into the spacious place, when we get our eyes off the track to see the view in front of us. And now is the time to accept and embrace ways of loving him with wider and more spacious expression and experiencing, having eyes to see him at work in ways that we didn't think possible. To press into ways of God revealing himself in ways we assumed he wouldn't or he shouldn't or he couldn't. To lift up our eyes to the ways of being his people and expressing our love for him in ways that more deeply embody the beauty and totality of who we are. And I feel like there's a call on us to bring our craft, the thing you love to do, take photos, garden. Love your photos, Denny. Wonderful garden. Your craft. Maybe your, your, your travel, maybe your music, to bring your craft, to bring your calling, and to bring your career into alignment with God's kingdom and to love him with all that we have and all that we do. And I believe we are in the days where the teachers will teach for the kingdom that is coming. The builders will build for the kingdom that is coming. The creatives will create for the kingdom that is coming. Leaders will lead for the kingdom that is coming. Parents will raise young disciples for the kingdom that is coming. They are exciting days. As the church, his bride, is being called to love her bridegroom, Jesus, in more embodied integrated and holistic ways than we've ever done before to love him with heart head and hands to love him with heart mind soul strength to love him with our all i'll invite the band to come on up to circle back to the interaction that jesus had with the scribe in answering this question there was one line that caught my attention and caused me to ask some questions and when Jesus had saw that this scribe had answered wisely Jesus said to him you're not far from the kingdom of God 
I mean, if that was me, I'd walk away pretty disappointed, <laughs> wondering why. You know, I'm, I'm close, maybe. How close? Uh, I'm close, I'm not in. What, what, what's doing there? I thought I answered it right. Uh, do I need to organise another coffee with Jesus and work this thing out? Uh, what, what do I need to do to not be close, but to, to have it, to have it all? What else do I need to do? What's missing? Uh, I'm curious as to what this guy felt when he heard this. Hey, yeah, mate, you're not far from it. <laughs> Thanks. It's like a game of hot and cold, getting warmer, warmer, warmer. How do I get hot, Jesus? Just tell me. You know, I think there was an internal work that the Spirit of God needed to do in this guy's life before he could fully embrace the kingdom of God. That there was still a remnant of the past for this scribe. In the lane that he was stuck in, in loving God the way he's always loved God and the way that he was convinced is the only way to love God and surely God can't work in any other way than me knowing the law to a T and following it to a T and not getting caught out by anything else. This is how I love God. You know, I think it's in that narrowness that this guy was only just close but not there. You know, I think this guy had perhaps forgotten to shamar the words that he's recited all the days of his life. I think that he had lived a life of listening but not obeying, of teaching and not doing. You know, I think he hasn't taken the time to take the indicatives of Scripture that he knew so well and forgot to live out the imperative to love God with everything, to put down his addiction to orthodoxy and walk into the wideness of love not just to allow Jesus to impact his head, but to be transformed to the very core of his being and to accept Jesus' invitation to a more full and true worship of him, to love him with his whole self, to hear and to do with all of his being. And I think God's doing the same work in us. You know, I'm not about to say who's in and who's out and who's close and who's, <laughs> who's far, who's hot and who's cold, who's warm. But what I do know is that in the kingdom of God, God transforms our hearts. And he welcomes us in as he does that in us. And so I wonder what he's transforming in you. I wonder in what way God is asking you to love him in a more wide and complete and full sense, in a more integrated way. I mean, perhaps what bit of your heart is not surrendered to him just yet that he's saying, come, bring that to me. Love me with that thing. Drop it at my feet and love me with it. Now, what's the work of integration and holistic faith that God is doing in you? Perhaps asking that question as we sing this song of worship and we'll finish off with a, um, just a time of prayer and ministry in a few minutes.